some of the anxiety about ridicule that uh, existed in the early 18th century, uh, I think exists today too. I think some of and some and some of the concerns are parallel. Some of them are not, right? So I think in the in the period that I'm looking at, people are a lot more concerned about the religious dimension of all of this. So is ridicule a deist weapon? Is this uh, is ridicule, particularly in religious debate, a way of undermining organized religion entirely? Is this an, an attack on Christianity? Um, you know, there was sort of this worry that there's a slippery slope argument. Once you start uh, mocking false prophets, then it's pretty quick. Uh, you know, you pretty quickly fall into to mocking Christ on the cross. That is a concern I think that is some people might entertain today. And I think if you look back historically, at, you know, in the 20th century, the controversy over films like The Life of Brian and so on that seem to be making fun of religion, you know, they do still have the capacity to offend, to uh, to alarm. But I think the the part that that speaks to today is this sort of worry about uh, of, of, about incivility and abuse. Welcome to New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast series that interviews intellectual historians about their recently published work. We're produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews, and I'm your host for this instalment, Robin Mills. Please follow the Institute on Twitter at St Andrews IIH, and you can find lots of resources, interviews, and much, much more at intellectualhistory.net. I'm sure there are links on there so you can subscribe to the podcast on Google Podcasts, Podbean, on Spotify, I think a few others as well. Finally, and apologies for having to do this, if you've been enjoying these podcasts and want to support them, then the Institute does have a fundraising page on the intellectualhistory.net website. More details there. We won't do adverts. Also, we can't do adverts. So yes, uh, <laughs> we need, uh, need, need uh, additional bits of cash if anyone is feeling flush, and I imagine you're not. So today, I'm very delighted to be joined by Dr. Ross Carroll. How are you doing, Ross? Not so bad, thank you. Good, good. Now, Dr. Cowell is Senior Lecturer in Political Theory at the University of Exeter, publishing mainly on themes relating to 18th century political thought. And his first book, his first book is a very, very good book, Uncivil Mirth, Ridiculed in Enlightenment Britain, which was published by in paperback by Princeton University Press last month, which is an excellent opportunity for us to talk with uh, Dr. Cowell. So uh, could you give us well, I don't know, a brief overview or the uh, the cliche but an elevator pitch about the book you know what is it what is this broad um what's the point of it before we then dive into oh sorry about that. Uh, what's the point of it before we dive into maybe some of the some of the detail sure um thanks robin for for having me on here um so the idea for this book uh, arose towards the end of my phd work so i was doing my phd at northwestern university in chicago and I, my research was on Enlightenment philosophers and their responses to enthusiasm, religious enthusiasm, normally think, normally think about it as fanaticism uh, today. And one of the more interesting responses I discovered to enthusiasm uh, in the Enlightenment was that of Anthony Ashley Cooper, the third Earl of Shaftesbury. And what Shaftesbury sort of found was that persecuting enthusiasts uh, only inflamed them uh, and indeed actually kind of fed their martyr complex, right? An enthusiast or, or, or 
fanatic who believes themselves to be God sent or on a divine mission uh, would actually almost encourage uh, persecution because it would confirm for them that they're on a deadly serious mission from God. Uh, Shaspi's alternative was to, to say, look, laugh at them, ridicule them. That way you kind of diffuse their power, you take away their authority, uh, but you also don't compromise crucially uh, religious, religious toleration. And Shaspri, um, for those of you who know the name, you know, you might be more familiar with the first Earl of Shaspri, who was one of the sort of principal political movers in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and, and one of the sense, the one of one of the architects of um, of the sort of toleration regime, if you like, that uh, that came into force at that time. And, and so Shaspri, the third Earl, was was deeply concerned with extending uh, the culture of religious toleration, and he actually thought ridicule. Um, was one method of doing that. It was a way of countering uh, not only religious fanatics, but also clerical power in a way that was consistent with uh, toleration. So after I finished the PhD, I thought, um, wow, there's actually a, a, a debate here uh, that starts with Shaspery that then extends for most uh, of the 18th century. So the, the initial defense of ridicule that Shaspery offered uh, was contained in a text called The Letter Concerning Enthusiasm, which he published in 1708. But it, I mean, this was part of a, a larger, if you like, outpouring of pamphlets in response to um, a, a series of, uh, or a group of prophets uh, who had fled France. They'd arrived in, uh, in London, they were Huguenots, and they were engaging in millenarian prophecy. They were um, recruiting followers. They were engaging in ecstatic acts of devotion and so on, and um, starting to cause quite a bit of alarm. And Shaspery's letter was one response uh, to that phenomenon, but there were so many. And the only reason why I think the letter concerning enthusiasm stood out was that it seemed to contain this more, um, if you like, ambitious defense of ridicule as a uh, as, a, as a practice uh, uh, in religious debate, but also uh, a more general, if you like, weapon of enlightenment. But it was a deeply controversial weapon, if you like, and, and for much of the 18th century, you know, lots of different philosophers either followed Shaspery's lead or, or condemned him and, and criticized the idea that ridicule could be a useful uh, pedagogical tool or uh, rhetorical act. So can I... So as I read through the book, it did come across that Shaftesbury was sort of the, the author that people were repeatedly going back to, that they were inspired by, they were in conversation with. The introduction, though, also sets up Thomas Hobbes mm -hmm. as sort of what the opposing figure to Shaftesbury. That, would that be the right way of talking about it? Could you go into a bit of detail maybe about uh, what Thomas Hobbes's account of, of laughter, of mirth, uh, what role that plays in the story? Sure. So in many respects, the book sort of charts uh, a debate between Shaftesbarians and Hobbesians, right? The, uh, and these are two rival perspectives on the relationship between ridicule and politics. So let's start, I'll start with the Hobbesian account and then show how, in some respects, the Shaftesbarians are responding to him. So um, in Leviathan and in other texts, Hobbes um, presents a rather nuanced account of what laughter is. I won't go into that now because it will take too much time, but there's sort of almost like a stereotype of the Hobbesian account of laughter that, it, that comes out of these texts and is taken up in the 18th century. And according to the stereotype, laughter reflects uh, a sense of superiority, uh, that when we laugh, we're always laughing at someone uh, or at their expense. So in a sense, laughter is inserted into this larger kind of story that Hobbes tells about human beings being egotistical, 
uh, being motivated by pride, being concerned with their reputation and so on. And laughter just becomes uh, you know, one way in which we demean or insult uh, another. And so it's a deeply dismal, I think, account of laughter. I think anyone, most people who would be reluctant to embrace that as a theory of laughter, simply because so much of laughter seems to be at completely innocuous things that have nothing to do with our positional superiority to anything else. Um, but the, it was taken seriously as an account of laughter, partly because Hobbes seemed to capture uh, how it was that people were wounded by ridicule, how, how it was that people experienced real grievance at being laughed at. And Hobbes's great concern, as always, was with social peace. Um, if uh, people feel affronted by being laughed at, if they are aggrieved at being mocked, uh, they might well retaliate and sometimes uh, with violence. And Hobbes had witnessed enough duels in his time uh, to, to, to realize that um, you know, sometimes a jest can turn ugly uh, if the person on the receiving end doesn't take it well. So, he's, uh, so Hobbes is, is a bit of a paradoxical figure in this respect because he both um, identifies the great power of, of ridicule as a disruptive force, uh, uh, particularly threatening to, to, to social peace. But of course, he, he can't resist using it himself. As, as Quentin Skinner documents in his extensive work on Hobbes, I mean, Leviathan is laced with ridicule of Aristotelians, of, of clerics, and so on. So, uh, and this is going to be a pattern we'll see with all of the figures we talk about. There is, uh, in some, se some sense, always a theoretical disavowal of ridicule, but also, you know, plenty, use, uh, plenty of use of it. Okay. So, oh, sorry. well, uh, yeah, I could, you know, this Hobbesian, if you like, um, account of, of laughter is, is countered by, uh, by Shaftesbury and those who come after him. So, so for, for people following in Shaftesbury's footsteps, they were more inclined to stress the sociable nature of laughter that it's, and I think, again, that will chime with many of us listening today that, um, you know, laughter is a way that you forge friendship, you share a laugh with others as a way of, um, you know, creating a social bond and so on. Um, and, but, but Shaftesburyans tended to go further, right? They wanted to say that, um, that ridicule particularly was a, as a useful thing to, to use in debate and a safe thing to use in debate, largely because they thought that, well, certain things are intrinsically ridiculous, right? Or intrinsically absurd. And, and ridicule is a really good way of identifying those things. And if, the, if it's true that some things are intrinsically absurd, then we shouldn't worry about non-absurd things being mocked because the sort of idea here is that it would just backfire. If you try and mock uh, something that is truly virtuous or truly natural, uh, it'll just backfire. You'll end up looking ridiculous. Um, and this was a concern that that the th this was an argument that was totally alien to the Hobbesians because the Hobbesians say, look, ridicule is just a piece of rhetoric. It can be used to make anything look ridiculous if the ridiculer is skillful enough. It does not like it's not like ridicule only attaches to certain things and other things are immune. Whereas the Shasperians very much thought that they thought that no, if you try and mock virtue, you just will you you will look uh, silly yourself. So there, so there are two questions there. Um, I think they push in the same direction, but I'll say both of them and then you do with them what you will. One of them, so there's the Stoic influence mm. on that position. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, I got the sense that there is, a, there is a, an order to things and anything that does not fit that order is ridiculous. So if you mocked it, it would you would just be mm. inviting people to go back to the correct way, the, the, the natural order of things. Um, could, could you please develop that a little bit maybe? And then also the phrase that, um, maybe our listeners and I definitely was familiar with before reading this is 
associated with Shakespeare is that ridicule is the test of truth. Mm -hmm. You apply ridicule to things and then it is a extremely effective means for uh, ending up upon or uh, finding the truth. Uh, but you, you qualify that or you complicate mm -hmm. that phrase a little bit in, in, the, in the second one, it's the first chapter maybe. Um, yeah, so either of those two, please, test of truth or stoicism. I'll take them in turn. So you're absolutely right that stoicism is crucial to the intellectual background to Shaftesbury's project. And, and in a sense, his commitment to stoicism has puzzled some, uh, some scholars who, who can't quite make sense of why someone who is a committed stoic would then embrace ridicule as a, as a weapon of political debate. Um, but so if you look at Shaftesbury's um, diaries or unpublished notebooks, these Ashkamata diaries, um, he seems to be deeply troubled by laughter. Um, and he uses, th th these diaries are largely reflections on Stoic philosophy. He's deeply in influenced by Epictetus uh, and Marcus Aurelius in particular. And, and in, in, they're not just in a sense intellectual diaries. It's not just him recording his thoughts about things. It's also a, uh, a series of exercises. He's performing Stoic exercises, if you like, on himself. And he admonishes himself for indulging in wit and jests and laughter too often. So it's, it's really quite almost disturbing to read because you see him, I think he probably had a turn for humor himself and he was kind of trying to weed this out of himself because, um, you know, accor according to stoicism, you know, the objective is self-mastery. And a lot of the time, if you are a kind of a joker, right, you're trying to get others to laugh. You're trying to, as he says, take pleasure in pleasing rather than taking the path of, of virtue, right? So there was sort of this worry among Stoics that laughter could be a sign of a corrupt character. That if you're if you're laughing too much, uh, then you're not you're not in control. You're not uh, you're not pursuing virtue. But also, I think what the scholars who are puzzled by Shaftesbury's simultaneous you know embrace of Stoicism and his, if you like, his, his practice of ridicule. Um, what, what I think is missing in, in, uh, in, in some of the scholarship is an appreciation for how the Stoics themselves kind of appreciated ridicule as a pedagogical device. So, so Epictetus, if you read Arian's discourses, you know, it's, it's full of Epictetus kind of hectoring his students in quite, you know, ridiculing ways for, you know, thinking that if they dress like Diogenes, they will be, that's sufficient to, to, to be a cynic um, and so on. And, and so there is, uh, there is a tradition of Stoic mockery, if you like, that I think Shaftesbury himself taps into. So the Stoics are both suspicious of laughter, but also more than prepared to use ridicule to, uh, to advance their, their philosophical agenda, if you like. And that, I think, is where, uh, is, is, so I think the attention is really just a, apparent in some respects. He doesn't really change his mind about laughter. That's, that's one account, right, is that he's got all these diaries where he's sort of fretting about laughter, but then when he comes to 1707, he's writing the letter concerning enthusiasm, he just sheds those doubts and just dives in. But I think, no, I think it's a bit more complicated than that in the sense that I think the it's, it's he's drawing on a different part of the Stoic tradition, I think, and, and, and part of the Stoic tradition that really appreciated someone like Diogenes the Cynic, who would often ridicule uh, those he, who he thought deserving of ridicule and did so uh, with, a, with a view to their uh, education, with, review, with a view to improving uh, their characters and their commitment to living in accordance with nature. To, to take your second question, you're absolutely right. So the, the phrase ridicule as a test of truth becomes a kind of trope in the 18th century. You see it scattered through novels and, uh, and, and other popular texts. Uh, I think there are some people even using it in the 18th century who fail to trace it back to Shaftesbury. It just becomes this, um, this, uh, this cliche. And uh, I don't think Shaftesbury really bought into that idea 
as fully as many of his critics believe. So this is something I try to argue in that portion of the book, right? So he, he, does, he does say, suggest at one point that ridicule is a, quote, manner of proof, right? Uh, and that if you try, if you test things with ridicule, that will tell you something about their, their worth. So, uh, and that, you know, that does give rise to this idea or the impression that he's, he's sort of treating ridicule as some kind of crude epistemological uh, test where you just simply, you know, see if something is laughable and if it is laughable, it must be false. And if it's not laughable, it must be true. But he, he doesn't, that's not really what he's going for. I think what he's trying to do um, in that, in those passages, which are contained in Census Communis, um, which is a, a second great treatise on, on, on laughter. I think what he's trying to do there is to say that the atmosphere in which truth will be found is improved if ridicule is allowed as, as, a, as an argumentative strategy, right? So it, he's trying to say, he's trying to free up uh, intellectual debate from the shackles of scholasticism. Uh, he's trying to say, look, if we, are, if we have too gloomy a mindset or we're too fastidious in how we go about debating, we're going to lose something. Uh, and it's better to sort of free up, uh, free up debate by permitting ridicule. It's not that ridicule gives us a direct line to truth, it's that, you know, if we are trying to, to, to have a, a, a debate that can eventually arrive at truth, we need to leave uh, ridicule uh, uh, as an option. And it has to be produced in a reciprocal manner. It, ridicule is, uh, works best if everyone is joining in and there's kind of equal opportunity uh, mockery going on. Can you, does that fit inside the general sort of Shakespearean, Shakespearean idea of um, sociability polishes off the rough edges of so I've just been hitting my knuckles there to do the polishing thing. Oh, apologies, listener. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the sort of social, social interaction polishes off the rough edges of human nature and ridicule fits into that how? Yeah, so great. So the so census communis, this text I just mentioned, uh, is perhaps most famous for its robust defense of natural human sociability. So this debate about human sociability that a lot of intellectual historians, Paul Sagar, for example, you've had on this podcast, I wrote a terrific book about the sociability debate in the 18th century and Shaftesbury is a key part of his story. Um, so there's, so he's trying to make this case for, for sociability. And he also are, seems to argue that, that ridicule uh, is compatible with sociability precisely because of this reciprocal nature, right? So he says that, he says that, that, that um, ridicule will refine itself. So he sort of almost suggests that there's a kind of auto refinement going on with ridicule. Uh, and that this occurs, this refinement, if you like, through what he calls amicable collisions between citizens. So, so um, you debate each other robustly, uh, you mock each other, but there is, a, there is a, always an understanding that, that you need to, to mock and sort of be mocked in turn. It's almost like a riff on Aristotle's notion that political rule is ruling and being ruled in turn. I was just about that. Does he, okay, I apologize if I'm misremembering, this is towards the end of that chapter. Doesn't it, doesn't that argument defeat itself? Because he suggests that actually the, the, the limp, the, the circle of people who will join that, um, but you know, um, reciprocal mockery, uh, are, will not include everyone. There'll be people on the outside, and they cannot benefit from this. Mm -hmm. And that seems to undermine what he's going for. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about um, the people who are on the outside? Mm. So his yeah. enthusiasts are on the outside. 
Yeah. And there's also there's also a stress you have, I think, about the the social position of the mm-hmm. people um, engaged in mutual mockery. Mm-hmm. That it's not everyone, and there's you have to be of a certain yeah, you have to all be insiders into a group already for it to work properly. I, I, I don't know if I'm misremembering this, but yeah, is there, are there tensions there about who is actually capable of doing this and not? And does that undermine, uh, do you think, what Shaftesbury's uh, arguing for? Yes, um, is the short answer, I think, or at least <laughs> it, does, it does put his argument under strain. So in terms of who the insiders are and the outsiders, so you're right, in, in some respects, he's trying to present a an account of basic human psychology, right? That there is, uh, that, you know, we have in a sense a natural sense of, of the ridiculous. Um, everyone should be able, in theory, to engage in this practice. But he, particularly in relation to high church Tories, uh, and I, I write a little bit about the uh, his response to the the uh, impeachment trial of Henry Sacheverell, for example. Um, you know, in that in that sort of tumult associated with that trial. Um, he seems to think that, you know, that he becomes a bit more partisan, right? And, and Lawrence Klein has written beautifully um, uh, about Shaftesbury and Whig ideology, right? That, that the, the ideology of politeness is, uh, is about Whig ideological hegemony, right? And, and he, at various times, uh, particularly in the miscellaneous reflections, which is the third, if you like, portion or volume of his characteristics, his, his major work, um, he does seem to hint that um, Whigs, uh, Whig gentlemen are just going to be better at this uh, and, and that this is their natural weapon. This is, uh, and, and those who are, and I don't necessarily think he means social inferiors. I don't think he's, he's suggesting that the lower classes are not going to be good at this, but he does suggest that high churchmen very often won't be. And that of course is just not true, right? I mean, in the, around the Sacheverell trial, I mean, this, this, this was around, uh, you know, it's still the early stages of the 18th century public sphere. You know, the um, uh, there was a, a relaxing of censorship around 1695, which allowed for uh, a huge number of satirical prints to be published, uh, and other forms of publication that contain ridicule. And the Sacheverell trial is just, uh, um, you know, it's it's a furnace of of this sort of uh, of this sort of activity. And in the Tories are giving as good as they get, right? There's no, there's no question that there's no question that that ridicule is somehow the monopoly, uh, or you know, refined wit is the monopoly of, of a, a particular uh, political persuasion or group. So um, yeah, there, I think there is a real a real tension there that he is trying to, and this is what Mandeville incidentally later takes a shot at, right? So Mandeville kind of takes a stab at Shaftesbury for being kind of elitist. Um, and uh, and does so, I think he does so in a way that is quite, I think, a little unfair. But but um, yeah, well, let's, let's, a, let's, let's jump on. Let's jump on to uh, jump over to Mandeville and then to Francis Hutchinson, who turns up and mm-hmm. uh, defends Shaftesbury again. Maybe we could introduce Mandeville and Hutchinson to our uh, mm-hmm. to some of our listeners who might not be familiar with them. But yeah, so that what's the next stage of this debate, and why do Mandeville and Hutchinson sort of stand out as important figures? Do you think? Well, Mandeville is someone who I think is rightly receiving more attention as a serious philosopher in his own right. I think he was known for much um, of the last decades as a kind of satirist primarily, right? His fable of the bees um, is a a satire on commercial society, you could argue. Um, That's the text where he makes his famous claim that uh, private vices produce public benefits. And he seemed to be providing a kind of 
um, a defense in sat satirical form of uh, of commercial society and, and, and trying to downplay or uh, criticize the, the sort of moralists who, who were fretting about the, the corrupting effects of luxury, the vices associated with, uh, with commerce. So that, that's the reputation that Mandeville has had, but he actually he is a quite serious philosopher. And I think he had serious philosophical objections to Shaftesbury, um, particularly concerning Shaftesbury's ideas around natural sociability. So he, and, and those objections take different forms. Sometimes he just kind of flat out rejects Shaftesbury's argument that we're naturally sociable. Um, and other times he even, he suggests that, um, he sort, of, he sort of says, thank God that Shaftesbury is wrong about this, because if we were naturally sociable, we would be, you know, he said, fit for nothing but to breed drones, that we would, uh, that's, that there would be a kind of um, uh, monk monkishness, <laughs> if you like, to, uh, uh, to human beings. They would, they would lack the drive and ambition and passion um, to create a society as sophisticated and as flourishing as, you know, 18th century Britain was. So I think that, there, that he seems to suggest that, that natural soci sociability is not present and, and it's, a, it's probably a good thing that it isn't because it's the way that we are unsociable that uh, drives, if you like, the, 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 uh, the economy, the, um, the society in which they, they lived in. But, but Mandeville um, has a, some rich commentary on laughter in the fable uh, of the bees, which I think has not been uh, analyzed closely enough. And he kind of provides um, a Hobbesian account of laughter. He has a, he has a, a debate, a dialogue um, uh, between the, the Hobbesian, if you like, and Shasperian perspectives. And he kind of offers a modified version, I would say, of the Hobbesian account, which is quite interesting. So he, he sort of agrees that, um, that laughter often uh, emerges from a feeling of superiority. Um, but he says that when we, have, when we perceive, if you like, um, inferiority in another, we, we don't automatically laugh, we feel um, one of two emotions, either pity or laughter. And, and whether we laugh or not, it depends on which of those two sort of wins out in the tussle. So, um, so he does sort of allow that, uh, that, that we, you know, we can perceive an inferiority in someone else and not automatically disdain that person. Uh, we can actually feel pity. Um, but of course, pity itself for Mandeville is a reflection of our own self-interestedness because what we, we, we experience sort of discomfort uh, witnessing the suffering of others because we imagine what that would be like for us. So it's, it's, uh, it's not really other regarding. Now, he also adds to Hobbes, I think a kind of physiological account of laughter. He talks about tickling, you know, not all laughter emerges from perception of inferiority. It's also, you know, it's, it's, uh, it can emerge through physical stimulation. And also, he, he maintains that it can be a kind of relax, relaxation of the muscles that, that, um, that, and this is, in a sense, uh, anticipating later relief theories of laughter, which center on the cathartic effect of laughter, that, that living in a civilized society requires us to conform to all sorts of norms and rules, uh, perform certain roles and so on, and that occasionally we just need to uh, let loose uh, and allow ourselves to, uh, to, to allow that tension, if you like, to dissolve. And that is what uh, Mandeville thinks laughter can do. And I think in ways, this is Mandeville's background as a, as a physician, as a doctor coming through. Like he has, he knows human anatomy and uh, he is interested in that physiological aspect of laughter, which is not really there much uh, in either Shaftesbury or any of his followers. You asked about Hutchison too. Uh, and Hutchison, um, so in the context of Dublin in the 1720s, Hutchison um, 
who was an Irish uh, philosopher who would spend most of his career in Glasgow, uh, where he would teach Adam Smith, most famously. Um, Hutchison uh, tries to rescue Shaftesbury's philosophy from Mandeville's attack, uh, but he, and that has been written about extensively, but um, what he also tries to do is to specifically attack Hobbes's uh, views on laughter and again, recover uh, ridicule as again, a sociable practice, one that can correct vice, uh, one that can usefully, if you like, um, uh, aid uh, moral development. And he, and he does, though, he, again, he doesn't just say, look, Shaftesbury was right, back off Mandeville. He, he comes up with his own account uh, of laughter in a series of uh, letters to Hibernicus that were published in the Dublin Weekly Journal. And in these letters, so he starts off by refuting the Hobbesian position. And again, he kind of caricaturizes, or car, car, uh, uh, caricatures rather, um, the Hobbesian position um, by saying, by kind of suggesting that, well, what Hobbes is saying is that whenever we perceive inferiority, then you know, we're, we're going to automatically laugh. And he says, well, that's absurd. You know, lots of times we perceive, um, say, you know, uh, a, a, a child wearing her mother's high heels you know, is, is going to produce laughter, but that's not a laughter of contempt. It would be absurd to say that we are disdaining the child. It's just a funny incongruity. It's just a funny combination of, of, uh, of, of or mismatch. And so he, he provides this alternative account of laughter that is more about incongruity, but then he also then tries to suggest that, um, well, ridicule does actually have a valuable social function and that the Hobbesian account doesn't, doesn't allow for this. And one of the things that it can do is to correct uh, religious idolatry. So he, he, if you like, repeats the Shasperian argument, but he does so using a scriptural warrant. Uh, and this is the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And this is a, a common story for anyone who is trying to defend the use of ridicule as a corrective to religious error. This story of Elijah is, is key. And this is so just for listeners who don't know this story, Elijah encounters the prophets of Baal who are, you know, worshipping their god Baal and he challenges them to, uh, to ignite a pyre uh, of wood. Um, you know, he says, you call your god uh, to ignite the pyre, I'll call my god uh, to do the same and we'll see who wins. And of course, he, uh, Elijah wins and the prophets of Baal are left frustrated. But rather than just sort of leaving it at that, uh, about, about, or sorry, rather, Elijah follows up with some very harsh sarcasm. So he says something like, why don't you cry, uh, cry louder? Maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's away on a journey. You just need to wait. So it's, it's taunting. And it's one of the rare examples in the Bible of someone taunting someone else in a, in a godly way, right? So, and Hutchison defends uh, ridicule in the, uh, using that example. He says, much as Elijah corrected the false prophets of Baal, so we can still use ridicule to correct idolatry uh, and false worship uh, today. So that makes me think of, um, so Hutchinson's responding to Mandeville, but he presumably also has one eye on what Orthodox Presbyterians uh, in Scotland who, and this sense that ridicule, that if you, you don't allow religion to be subjected to ridicule, then someone gets to be pompous and haughty and they mm -hmm. can domineer. Um, but it, you, you're you're just uh, puncturing that, aren't you? You're allowing that as a uh, you're giving that uh, using that as a tool to puncture the pomposity or the haughtiness of um, what would they be? Sort of uh, the old school Presbyterians in, mm. in Scotland. Um, is that a point that Hutchinson is making explicitly? Is oh, have I read that into him? 
is there a sense that there's you're talking to Mandeville over there, but you've also got a sense mm. of there is the uh, if you're in England, be the high churchman that you're responding mm -hmm. to. Um, is that an an additional aspect of what Hutchison's doing? Yeah, I think so. I don't think this, you know, Hutchison has not yet left for Scotland in terms okay. of his career, right? So he's he's published he's published his letters to Ibernicus in in Ireland, but uh, but Dublin sees a kind of replay of the high church wig several controversy um you know it sort of rumbles throughout the uh these islands and and so he's his immediate targets i think are the likes of swift and others who are um more on the tory side of that debate so um so indeed uh hutchison teams up with james arbuckle who's the editor of the dublin weekly journal um uh, who's also kind of a um uh, involved in that uh, dispute um, so yeah, I think there is that uh, there is that same uh, I suppose controversy rumbling on. But he, um, in terms of so what you said there about haughtiness, I mean there is going back to Shaftesbury. I mean he does talk about how one of the main targets of ridicule is false gravity, this kind of performed seriousness, and I, and that and that is less about enthusiasm, as you say, and more about. Uh, clerical power, uh, and and there, there is, in, you will get that in Scotland, right? And and Hume, we'll talk about presumably later on. You know, he is he's no stranger to to domineering clerics who adopt a kind of air of seriousness as a way of uh, covering up maybe certain defects in in their in their arguments or their character. So that kind of idea that ridicule can unmask haughtiness uh, and puncture false gravity is really important to everyone in that tradition but it's it's sort of it's it kind of gets to in ways the the paradox of uh, of of ridicule that it is both the product of haughtiness and the best antidote to it so mary wollstonecraft who again we'll probably talk about later i mean she was really worried that um if you if if young children learn the habit particularly children of the gentry it goes back to your question about social position you know, if they learn the habit of mocking their servants um, or mocking those who attend on them, um, that will breed a kind of haughtiness in their character that will then carry over into adulthood. So, so ridicule among children is really dangerous because they they just start to see themselves um, as a superior, uh, you know, for no reason, and 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 then this breeds a kind of arrogance, which of course, which in turn, you know, is unsociable. So, um, yeah, that's. That's a real concern. Going back actually to Locke, I mean, Locke, I mean, Wollstonecraft is getting this from some thoughts concerning education, Locke's text, where he worries again about if children are too haughty, uh, they will become haughtier again as adults. The next chapter moves on to David Hume, who, if I read you rightly, so you position as someone who's walking a middle path between Mandeville and Hutchison and Shaftesbury, so Mandeville on one side, and Hutchison, well, Mandeville and Hobbes on one side, Hutchison and Shaftesbury on the other. This will come, this might be interesting to listeners who, if they're familiar with Hume on ridicule or sort of the ridicule, ridiculous elements or the, the mocking elements in Hume, will know him to be someone who was very willing to mock religion. I just want to read like the sentence from the end of, of Miracles, which runs, so that upon the whole we may conclude that the Christian religion not only was at first attended with miracles, but even at this day cannot be believed by any reasonable person without one, which is contemporaries read 
to mean, or you know, they take that to mean uh, you are ridiculous for believing in Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have mm-hmm. to, it has to be a miracle in the, in the minds of each person that they can believe any of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Hume that emerges from your chapter is a far more nuanced, skeptical, reticent mm-hmm. figure who who isn't just um, who isn't blasé about the dangers of ridicule. I wonder if you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your take on Hume, please. Sure. So you're absolutely right that particularly the text you've just mentioned has given Hume a reputation as a, as a mocker of, of religion and of Christianity in particular. And that, and that is, I mean, that reputation is deserved, I think, to a, to a large extent. But if you look at what Hume actually says about uh, mirth, ridicule, humor, and so on across his writings, um, and across his correspondence, you know, he, he does have real hesitations. I mean, he does, when he was secretary for the Philosophy Society of Edinburgh, um, he uh, admonished one uh, participant in a, in a debate for, for using raillery excessively, and he says that raillery is unphilosophical. And at various other points in his writings, he casts doubt on the notion that satire is a kind of good avenue towards truth, which I think is a, an allusion to um, to Shaftesbury. Um, he had a very difficult relationship with Shaftesbury's philosophy, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Hume discovered Shaftesbury quite early on when he was 15. Um, he read the characteristics and he took to heart Shaftesbury's recommendation that you should engage in introspection if you're serious about becoming an author. And it ends up just uh, throwing Hume into a bit of a depression rather than making him a kind of stoic optimist. Um, he ends up uh, having a kind of, um, I suppose, mental and emotional crisis. He still refers to Shaftesbury in positive terms later on, but he's not, I don't think he buys into, first of all, the teleology that allows Shaftesbury to say, for example, that some things are intrinsically ridiculous and other things aren't. Hume is far closer to Hobbes, I think, uh, and Mandeville in thinking that, um, you know, things can be portrayed as ridiculous by a skillful rhetorician. Uh, That doesn't tell us anything really about their inherent ridiculousness. And just to give one example of Hume doing this. So um, in his History of England, which is where, which is also kind of full of, uh, of snide remarks, sarcasms, mockery of various religious practices, he was often considered to be you know, particularly scathing of, uh, of Catholic devotional practices, in particular uh, Catholic use of, of relics um, and uh, vestments, uh, you know, their interest in statues and so on. But Hume at various points you know, maintains that yes, Catholicism does seem to be especially vulnerable to ridicule because of its attachment to these things. But he says, you know, Presbyterians uh, and Puritans are also vulnerable, right? So he's kind of an equal opportunity mocker in that regard. So he doesn't really think that there are certain religious practices that are intrinsically ridiculous and others that, uh, that aren't. One could argue that he thinks the whole thing is ridiculous. I don't know if that's the case. Um, I think uh, Hume takes seriously the role uh, that religion plays in society. Um, I don't think he is quite so reckless as to, as to wish for its total demise. There's one line of interpretation on, on Hume, uh, that he is a moderate, polite, you know, accessible thinkers, trying to bring people in, bring mm. them over to his side, encouraging philosophical debate. I saw sort of James Harris's, one of, you know, one of James Harris's points, you're encouraging um, good-natured philosophical debate. And you're trying to take mm. the sting out of, um, you know, take out the 
take out controversy from how people engage with each other, you know, controversy and then dogmatics and polemics and so on, and not dogmatics, polemics. And then on religion, Hume slips up repeatedly, mm. that he repeatedly can't prevent, can't stop himself from indulging mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. pointing out things that he thinks are utterly ridiculous about religion. Um, mm. You talk about that interpretation a little bit. What's your take on whether Hume can't help himself? So that was the position I started off with. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a position held by a number of scholars. Isabel Rivers, for example, um, mentions that Hume sort of speaks against raillery in the writings I've just mentioned, you know, but, uh, but cannot help indulging it himself. And I think there is... Um, there is something to that. I think sometimes he was genuinely surprised, though, at the response that his writings met with. So that would, to me, suggest that it is unwitting a lot of the time, that he's not kind of deliberately smuggling in all of this. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of irony in Hume. There's a, there's, there's a lot of work written on Hume's irony, certainly. But, um, but I don't see him as... As you say, as you said in, in, in earlier, I don't see him as being blasé about the effects that ridicule can have. And one of the one of the areas where I find him to be interestingly suspicious of of mockery and so on is is in the history of England when he discusses various characters who are authoritarian, haughty, arrogant, uh, abusive of their power, and also happen to be pranksters. And I don't think this is a coincidence. So Cromwell, he spends quite a long time discussing Cromwell's. Um, a buffoonery, uh, Cromwell, Cromwell's pranks, Cromwell putting hot coals into the boots of his officers um, as a prank, um, Cromwell uh, doodling uh, a face um, on, a, uh, on, a, on a, um, a warrant for someone's execution. You know, just really callous stuff. Um, and, and this prankering, this sort of prankster nature goes hand in hand with his, uh, with his erosion of English political liberty. Similarly, Charles II, the Merry Monarch, you know, they're supposed to be cast, you know, joking all the time. You know, there's a quite chilling scene in Hume's history where he relates how when Parliament was trying to put a tax on playhouses, uh, Sir John Coventry, a kind of audacious MP, dares to suggest whether the king's pleasure lay with the male players or the female players. Um, and what is, you know, rather than sort of thinking, you think about ridicule again as this reciprocal thing where you take it and give it, Charles II's courtiers have Coventry mutilated. His, his nose is cut to the bone, right? So a lot of the time, I think Hume is trying to teach a lesson there about how fairly brutally authoritarian characters can present an air of joviality, but that screams uh, a far more sinister character underneath. So I think Shaftesbury is all about using ridicule to expose hypocrisy. I think Hume sometimes tells us how uh, it can facilitate hypocrisy or how humor at least uh, can facilitate hypocrisy is there anything we could say any more we could say about the positive uh influence it could have on society if that if, if you know if it's being mm. if what you just said is being aware of the dangers mm. of ridicule running amok then mm. are, what's the is there a positive spin on it or you know uh, so certainly yeah certainly and i think that is i mean I would say that although Hume rejects the teleology that underpins Shaftesbury's confidence in the safety of ridicule, at the same time, he's broadly on board with that program of using humor as a form of amicable collision. Uh, like that's um, ethos, if you like, that comes out of Census Communis is, is, is clearly part of, of Hume's 
um, not only his philosophy, but uh, and indeed in his treatise on human nature, I mean, one of the things that he does there that's quite quite interesting is that he elevates good humor and wit into moral qualities, right? Not just kind of, you know, today we might think of someone who's got a good sense of humor as someone who's enviable, but like, oh, that's, you know, that guy's got a, a really good witty nature. That's good for him. But Hume says, no, these are actual things that should be esteemed uh, because they have actual real benefit, right, to society. And I think that is, again, it's because it facilitates conversation, because it, um, I suppose, contributes to a sociable atmosphere. Um, that's why they're they're valuable. So I think he does he does value them. And of course, in his own practice, I mean, he is known as Le Bon David because mm. he was so so uh, at ease with with conversation in certain settings. Of course, really, I mean, he, Smith in his famous obituary letter uh, praises Hume's wit as as being so good natured that even those who were the object of it saw the funny side or were pleased by it. Um, I think that's perhaps overly optimistic, but. Certainly he seems in conversational settings to have been able to practice a perfect mean, if you like, a perfect uh, balance between, you know, the bite of wit and, uh, and benevolence and kindness. Whether he achieves that in his writings or not is a different story. A lot of his religious readers simply were offended by, by what he was doing. Yeah, I suppose, so I quite like that idea of Hume in his personal life and trying to, and main, I think largely achieving in his published writings to model good behavior. <laughs> to, mm -hmm. He's modeling um, what he would like philosophical debate to be like mm -hmm. uh, in a country that still has its shouty, angry people. Uh, and some of the, they're not the shouty people, but they're, they might be the, maybe they're the angry people will be uh, the Aberdeen Philosophical Society of the next chapter. Mm -hmm. um, now, so we move uh, north up from Edinburgh to the Aberdonian Enlightenment. And just for purposes of time, I might limit this to, and also because I'm really interested in him, James Beattie. Um, there's a, there are a bunch of philosophers up in Aberdeen who are seriously engaging with Hume's writings. They both are, they, there's something alluring about Hume, but they are also quite uh, threatened or uh, angry at him. Well, I'm bringing possibly too much into it, but, that, but he provokes them. Um, and this provokes, uh, provokes ridicule in turn from them to Hume, but also the theorizing of ridicule in the case of uh, Beattie a little bit further in a way that I think is pretty interesting. So yeah, mm -hmm. could, we, could we very broadly talk about what mm -hmm. the Aberdeen Enlightenment is, how they're responding to Hume and how they're using ridicule. And then can we get into Beattie and the class stuff that you yeah, bring in sure. there towards the end? Because I thought that was a really um, interesting development. Sure, so yes, broadly. Um... Uh, the members of the Aberdeen Wise Club um, are alarmed, I think, by Humean skepticism, but also intrigued by it. And some of them, such as Thomas Reed and George Campbell, you know, believe that Hume uh, is ingenious and should be respectfully engaged with. They think he's wrong. And indeed, Reed goes to, so far as to say that his skepticism is absurd. And Reed comes up with a very interesting account of absurdity. It's a very technical discussion. He says that nature has given us a sensation or sense of the absurd uh, that allows us to repel skepticism in a way that rational argument can't. So sometimes, you know, for some of these philosophers, it's not just that it's, it, it's more polite to, to argue than not to argue. In some cases, there are absurdities where um, argument will be futile. You have to uh, trigger your sense of the ridiculous uh, using Ridicule. So, so Reed um, uh, does say that, that ridicule is the best response to, to Humean 
skepticism at various points, but he himself actually um, is very respectful uh, to, to the, almost to the annoyance of someone like Beattie. Like Beattie was actually quite irritated at how George Campbell and Reed uh, were so respectful um, uh, towards Hume. And so uh, when, Hume, when, when Beattie came to write his essay on truth, that is a refutation of Hume. I mean, he just took the gloves off, right? It was, it was very much um, ad hominem. Uh, uh, it was very much uh, presenting Hume as, as, as uh, motivated uh, by vanity, by uh, uh, suggesting that he comes out of a particular Edinburgh milieu that people in Aberdeen should be suspicious of. Um, he's violating people's notions of common sense. Um, and you know he needs to be uh, refuted with every weapon available, including ridicule. So, um, yeah, it really is sort of no holds barred uh, um, when when Beatty encounters Hume. But I think that is wrong. I mean, so Beatty has not really fared well among historians of philosophy. I mean, those who uh, particularly take Hume seriously, and obviously Hume is a canonical figure in the history of philosophy, they sort of just suggest that Beatty's out of his depth, right? He's a poet primarily. He doesn't really uh, know how to engage true, in his own terrain. Well, I mean, uh, so, so famously Kant, of course, learns about some of Hume's arguments via Beattie's refutation, because Beattie would sometimes just quote huge chunks yeah. from the treatise and then, and, then, uh, uh, and, then try, and then just say something like, isn't this silly, isn't this ridiculous? And Kant is like reading this going, no, no, Hume's right. <laughs> yeah. Or Hume has a stronger case here, not Beattie. So um, yeah, I think there is something to that. But I think what's more interesting about Beattie is, is what you alluded to just now, which is, is that his, his, his actual, his essay on laughter, which um, again, engages in serious philosophical reflection on the nature of laughter. It develops what we might call Hutchison's incongruity argument that suggests that, that, that laughter emerges from contrasts, uh, unusual contrasts, surprising juxtapositions and so on. But it also, uh, it also contains an interesting account of why ridicule, uh, humor, laughter will vary across societies. And, and here he is very much participating in that Scottish Enlightenment um, you know, science of man, right? Trying to, uh, to understand, you know, variation in, 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 in custom and practice across different ages and different societies. And he has some rather intriguing arguments. And one of them is that political regime, variations in political regime are a core determinant of the kind of, the level and kind of laughter you will have in a society. So he says that feudalism, because you know, feudalism is characterized by very distinct social orders, um, knights, monks, those who pray, those who, those who are serfs or you know, peasants, there's, uh, everyone's social order and way of life is so radically different that this creates incongruity, right? The, the clash between these people will create the conditions for comedy and for mirth. By contrast, a society which is more uh, a more Republican, for example, a republic that is egalitarian. He thinks that breeds a kind of uh, homogeneity and homogeneity is bad for laughter because there's not enough friction uh, or clash between different ways of life or customs. So he says that, uh, so he says that, you know, republics are going to be somber. They're going to be sort of sober places. And he also says they're sober for a different reason that in a republic, the citizenry are engaged in the serious uh, practice of public affairs. They are actually participating in political life. And that requires sobriety. In, a, in an absolute monarchy, the people around, the vast majority of people have no say in government or politics whatsoever. This, in a sense, frees up their minds to be more frivolous. 
Uh, whereas in a true republic, where people are citizens uh, and, and, and are responsible for public affairs, that sense of responsibility chases away any sense of humor, um, which is an intriguing argument because normally democracy and humor are considered to be bedfellows, right? And, and you know, thinking about the history of comedy, going back to ancient Greece, Aristophanes, and so on, you know, that's a you know that this is often seen to be a demotic genre. And yet Beattie says, no, you're going to get more laughter, more humor, more comedy in hierarchical societies that have a lot of differentiation um, uh, than you will in a more egalitarian society or a republic. This is taken up, incidentally, by John Miller, who is uh, a professor of law at Glasgow University and a student of Adam Smith. And he actually takes Smith's argument about the division of labor and, and applies it using Beattie's argument. So he says, look, in a division of in a society with an advanced division of labor, that will uh, enable humor because there'll be such social differentiation. He says the you know the the the, the smith and the mason will laugh at the tailor, uh, and so on. The division, the different professions will uh, be odd to each other, and so occasion mirth. Um, but he says there's a tipping point. If you get to the point where the division of labor is taken too far, there's not going to be as much room for humor. So for example, to take Smith's example of pin making, the, the person who rounds the head of the pin versus the person who sharpens the tip, you know, their professions are so similar that there just isn't enough in to, to generate uh, laughter uh, among them. Fascinating. I really like that. Um, just to, related to BT and then also a way of moving into our, our next chapter, what I I mean, I've written about this, so apologies for intruding on your interview. Um, but what's interesting for me about Beatty is he is so popular for so mm -hmm. long. He's clearly the intellectually inferior of the other people in the common sense school. Well, let's pretend that exists. Um, but he is tremendously popular. And one of the reasons why he's popular is because he's sticking it to Hume. And there, there, there's the thing here about ridicule being successful um, Hume should win that argument, but it's, <laughs> argu it's arguable that Beattie wins it for a lot of people because he is just so aggressively, vehemently rude about Hume, and that sells really well. So there's an issue about audience that I might want you to talk about, either in terms of Beattie, but also in terms of the next chapter, which is about the abolitionist movement in late 18th century Scotland that deploys the tactic, the satirical tactic of pretending to be pro-slavery, but in the right. process of demonstrating the absurdity of the, uh, of the existence of slavery, right? So yeah, um, which is dangerous because some people don't get it. Mm -hmm. So yes. can we, is, is there any concern of, yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about, um, uh, move, let's move into that chapter mm. about slavery, but I'm also interested in your sense of whether anyone is concerned about the issue about whether people get it or not. Mm, yeah, you know, that, that, is that issue. Well, in some respects, that issue of audience goes back to back to Shaftesbury. So Shaftesbury has a very optimistic story about Socrates in ancient Athens that he, you know, by being mocked uh, by Aristophanes um, or by being seen to be mocked, standing up in the theater and, and uh, you know, exposing himself to mockery uh, when Aristophanes' clouds was being performed, that this actually enhances his reputation that the audience see that that. Uh, Socrates is such a good-natured, good-humored fellow, and this actually enhances his reputation in Athens. You know, that's a very optimistic story about, about audience there. But, you know, you're absolutely right about Beattie. I mean, he's someone who manages to, you know, he gets a royal pension, uh, he wins an honorary degree. You know, he's, he's feted for this uh, performance. Edmund Burke, uh, who is no slouch intellectually, thinks it's a terrific uh, performance. You know, it's, 
it is a remarkable uh, response. Um, it, it could simply be that Hume's writings were too obtuse uh, for the for the popular uh, popular consumption, and Hume himself, of course, thought this. This is one reason why he arguably embarks on essay writing and history writing towards the end of his life, rather than continuing with straight up philosophy. But to go, but Beattie's actually a good figure to transition to the next chapter because he's also someone who uh, he criticizes Hume not only uh, for his skepticism but also for Hume's notorious footnote in Of National Characters, the essay where Hume essentially uh, denies the possibility of there being a worthwhile civilization in Africa. Uh, and hence, you know, this is um, a footnote that is, 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 is notorious for, for good reason. And it's one that Hume revised, but never deleted, right? So it, it does represent his considered view. Beattie, you know, ha was, was, savagely attacked him for this. And it's more easy to be sympathetic, of course, with Beattie in this instance. Um, uh, but he was not the only one. So there's a lot of Scottish uh, writers, thinkers who are sympathetic to the abolitionist cause, who, who look to Shaftesbury to a degree, I think, but also to Montesquieu, um, as, he, as he said. So Montesquieu in the Spirit of the Laws uh, has a mock endorsement, if you like, of the, of the African slave trade. And uh, it was, but it, this was one of those mock endorsements that indicate how risky uh, particularly ironic forms of ridicule can be, right? Because you're you're never quite clear how the message will be taken up. Um, and it's, so the book, the best example of this, I think in that chapter is uh, the text uh, by uh, Alexander Geddes, uh, who is a, a Scottish Catholic um, intriguing figure, is a Scottish Catholic, but believes in the uh, Bible and the vernacular. So he spends a lot of his life writing a definitive English edition of the Bible for the use of, of, of Scottish Catholics. But he also writes an apology for slavery, a mock apology of slavery, that when Joseph Johnson published uh, a second edition, it had to come with a warning on it that it was indeed a satire because it wasn't clear to the readers that it was. And so it was, but this sort of raised this interesting question about about, about debating something like slavery in a purely earnest way. Is there actually something um, wrong about that? Does it actually grant undue dignity to arguments that should not be countenanced at all? Is that the, is that the feeling of the, of the enlightened Scots that you're looking at? That it's such an absurdity, it's such a horrific thing mm. that to engage with it seriously is to give it dignity it doesn't deserve. Is that what they're, is that the position they're holding as opposed to a position we might hold and look back on? Uh, I say a little of both. So the, 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 the interpretation of Montesquieu by Abbe Reynal, um, the, his interpretation of that chapter in Montesquieu was that um, Montesquieu thought it would be an affront to reason itself to argue earnestly with defenders of the slave trade. That, so that, that does suggest that at least Reynal thinks that Montesquieu does think it would be a disservice, if not to the slaves themselves, then, it, then to reason, to actually um, to, to, to earnestly uh, debate uh, pro-slavery um, advocates. Um, whether it's the case with some of these Scottish figures I look at, it's a little less clear. In some cases, I think it was just um, that they had a propensity for satire anyway. In the case of uh, of Geddes, um, he has, you know, he, he from his earliest writings, he was interested in uh, in satire, and it seems like that was just the genre he was most comfortable with. But his, uh, you know, his, I suppose his intervention was 
um, was powerful because it did, what, what he does is he takes only slightly exaggerated versions of pro-slavery argument and sort of exposes them as ridiculous. And, and I think, of course, that is always, that's a powerful rhetorical move that we see a lot of people using today. But it always, in, in order to do it well, of course, you have to, the, the, the arguments have to be recognizable as the arguments of the other side. But if they are too recognizable as the arguments of, of the other side, they might be just um, interpreted as, as sincere. Um, I think my favorite satire from that chapter is uh, the one that was produced by Teitler. And this is James Teitler, who was an early editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And he produces a satire in the context of a petition campaign to Parliament in 1790, where there's a sort of a flood of petitions coming from all over Britain to end the slave trade. And rather than sort of add one more earnest voice to that, he decides to come up with a petition that is a, again, a mock petition from the sharks of Africa to the House of Commons, begging for the slave trade to be continued because so many bodies of slaves are thrown overboard during the Middle Passage, providing them with food. So this is really dark uh, satire. And it's, it's, I would suggest it's more in the Swiftian mm. tradition than in the Shaspirian. Shaspirian satire can be dark, but I don't think it's ever quite that dark. And um, whereas something like Swift's Modest Proposal um, is, is, you know, is, is comparable. Uh, what are the issues that are raised by um, this uh, satirical intonation of pro-slavery arguments? What, how, how does it all work? Is it successful? Um, how does it contribute to the, the larger uh, theme of the book? Yeah, I think the, the, the issue of its success is really difficult to measure, like with all of these things. I mean, the, it's, it, the, the reach of these pamphlets is not always clear. Um, you know, the, the shark satire, for example, um, is unlikely to have reached, reached many people. Um, I suppose what, I, th I think what this does for the, for the argument of the book as a whole is to show that too often we think about, I suppose, ridicule and satire as a, as a, as a, deliberate, a, a deliberate rhetorical strategy. Um, and what we don't think of it as, as is as a refusal. And I think a lot of these um, satires are precisely that. They're refusals to engage um, in argument with a certain kind of opponent, or at least a refusal to engage with them on their terms or the terms of their choosing. So I think it's, a, it's an attempt to sort of shift the rhetorical ground on which a particular contest over an issue takes place. Now, whether it's successful or not, I'm not sure, but I'm intrigued by that attempt. And I think that is something that is, is important to the theme of the book, because if you look at in chapter four, looking at the, the common sense philosophers in Scotland, a lot of what they're debating in terms of ridicule is, is ridicule an alternative to rational argument, or is it actually a form of argumentative reasoning itself? So Alan Ramsey, for example, argues that there is an argumentative ridicule, there's a certain ridicule that smuggles argument in it. Uh, and that is, you know, that's the, the, the form that should be promoted. Is, uh, you know, are these satires that I'm looking at in chapter five, are they in that mode? Are they sort of argumentative or are they kind of more radically refusing to argue at all? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I haven't quite made up a mind about it, but I think, you know, this is, I keep getting pulled back to this material and I, and I might yet, you know, write something else on it. Interesting. Okay, so we come to our final chapter, 
which is on Mary Wollstonecraft. And Wollstonecraft is, well, there's also a conclusion which we'll come to, um, but Wollstonecraft is another author who seems to have quite nuanced, complicated opinions on ridicule, mm -hmm. who starts off on one position and then ends up doing something else. So I wondered whether you could, again, I, we're, we're a little bit pushed for time, but could we uh, go over her, her cautionary attitude about ridicule mm -hmm when she's a bit younger, when she's writing on education, and then how things change with the two vindications. And then she deploys ridicule with great, you know, to great effect. She's very, very good at it. So what's the, and it's, you know, it's willing to use it as a primary tool uh, against Burke, right? So, or one of her major tools anyway. Um, yeah, how, how, explain that, explain those two positions and then how she gets from A to B. So Wollstonecraft, as, as many of you will know, um, begins her writing career um, as the author of books that were educational in nature. And, and education was a, uh, a fixation of hers uh, throughout her life. Um, and in those educational writings, she, uh, she expresses great misgivings about ridicule. And again, especially, especially um, young people who um, kind of indulge the habit of um, of mocking whether it, people's physical deformities, um, whether it's um, other people's um, sense of dress. I mean, anything. She, she's worried about the kind of um, that that sort of the, the satisfaction that children can get uh, or derive from from mocking either each other or uh, or, or other people. Um, and so she's she's worried about the cruelty that that can embed in a character. From a young age, and this is again her sort of her Lockean associationalism, right? That as you as you the habits you develop in in the young age uh, will, in a sense, determine the kind of character you become later on. Um, but she's also worried about um, you know slightly older women attending uh, social gatherings who will sometimes use a wit their wit as a substitute for argument as a kind of a cheap way of gaining applause. Um, and she thinks this is a, a deeply worrying trend because it can, again, it not only cheapens reason, but it also, uh, again, encourages a kind of frivolity, a sort of superficiality among the women of her day. And of course, that has always been a concern of Wollstonecraft that, that's, um, that the women of her day are not taken seriously enough. And sometimes they make it worse for themselves by uh, behaving in ways that are, that are overly superficial. She's also concerned that ridicule is a kind of a vice of privilege. So she a lot of her her letters uh, and indeed her um, her later writings um, express a kind of disgust at the the practice of ridicule she sees at, for example, Eton. So she visits Eton at one point and writes to her sister that puns were flying about like firecrackers. Like this was just uh, you know haughty elite men sort of sparring with each other, trying to gain advantage of each other, but not really having a meaningful discussion about anything. Right? They're just engaging in cold. Uh, contests of wit that didn't really that didn't really amount to anything. Well, the word be banter same, now, right? Exactly, banter, yeah. yeah. And she sees the same thing at Versailles. So there's this interesting moment where she expresses sympathy with Robespierre's argument that uh, that in a new republic, in a new France, that genius would be prized ahead of wit. Um, that wit is a kind of aristocratic taint to it. Um, there's it, it, to be witty is to is to participate in the superficial inauthentic discourse of the court. Um, and, and she actually worries, actually, there's a lot of satirical work that is produced attacking uh, the early 
uh, French revolutionaries. The, the, the debates of the Assemblée Nationale were parodied in conservative um, publications. And Wollstonecraft really worried about that because he thought these guys are really practiced at this, right? They know how to, to carve out a really funny uh, and humorous uh, satirical uh, polemic. And you know, our side, if you like, those who are in favor of the revolution broadly, are 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 you know too inexperienced. We're not. We're going to lose that uh, battle if this is. Uh, so she even you know thinks that the early revolutionary government should censor some of this stuff. That there should be uh, a degree of control. This is in her writings on the French Revolution. Uh, there should be a degree of control uh, of that material because uh, otherwise the revolution itself could be overturned by by humor. Um, so we go from there. Where ridicule is the tool of the privileged against the, yeah. well, you know, the middling sort, I suppose, in Wollstonecraft's uh, regard to Wollstonecraft, and then it switches into you describe it, am I remembering correctly, as a tool for the disadvantaged against yeah. the privileged. She is then able to, so what happens there? How does she go from that to then seeing ridicule as something that is actually a very powerful tool for those people who are not powerful? Yeah, so that was the original puzzle that motivated uh, this chapter, where I was trying to, to, to take seriously her vindication of the rights of men, which is often dismissed as this kind of screed, right, against Burke. I mean, it, certainly it is very ad hominem, right? It, it's very, uh, you could argue, aggressive in its tone. Like, it's mostly an attack on him. She accuses him of taking a pension from the crown, which would have stuck deep with Burke, given that he'd spent most of his career arguing against pensions. Um, she accuses him of being, you know, unmanly in his uh, in his uh, rejection of the French Revolution and his refusal to embrace uh, its promise. Um, and you know, but the the what she does is 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 communicate a kind of contempt for Burke that is unapologetic. And and I think my initial thought was that this is a bit in tension with with her general um, disavowal of ridicule. But then I started to realize that actually she sees certain characters as having forfeited their entitlement to be treated with respect, you know, if they themselves uh, demean others unnecessarily. And, and what she was really enraged by was his treatment of Richard Price uh, in the reflections of the revolution in France. So those of you who've read that text will know that uh, the opening of the reflections contains a sustained attack on Richard Price um, for, uh, a sermon that he delivered uh, welcoming the French Revolution. And, um, you know, Price um, was elderly. Uh, Price, of course, was um, a mentor to Wollstonecraft. So I think this was an, there was an element of, there was a personal peak here. Um, but she also thought, look, you, you are, you know, you are a, a parliamentarian uh, at the end of your career. You are in a position of immense privilege. And yet you behave in this way towards someone who is quite, quite vulnerable. So I think Wollstonecraft was like, well, you don't get to be treated with kid gloves anymore. Um, and I think there was um, a way in which she, I think she was sort of in ways going back to an older tradition of, of ridicule, which again, sees it as puncturing conceitedness, vanity. She calls Burke vain several times. Um, you know, this is, this is the tool I need for this kind of engagement. So I think it's quite conscious and deliberate. I don't think it's just driven by rage or anger or even though she composed the text rather quickly. But when you get to the second vindication, the vindication of the rights of women, she kind of she she comes up with other interesting deployments of ridicule or uh, you know ways it can be used. And one of these concerns um, education of young girls. Um, and 
this is, I thought, you know, one of the most fascinating proposals she makes in the Vindication of the Rights of Woman is that young girls who are tempted to read sentimentalist novels that Wollstonecraft mostly thinks are useless, or, or if not, you know, in many cases they're worse than useless because they reinforce stereotypes about women that are degrading of women. She says, well, the best thing to do is you're not going to be able to tell them not to read them. They're going to be exposed to them somehow. So appoint a tutor with a turn for humor, she says, to sit down, read the books with the girls and mock them as, the, as you go. In other words, um, this is sort of, I think, using ridicule as a way of inoculating young women against uh, narratives that are ultimately going to be damaging to them in the long run. So it's, I think it's a really intriguing approach to rather than just saying, look, ban them from looking at the stuff, which is clearly unreal, both un unrealistic and, and I think um, wrong-headed, she says, look, you can use ridicule um, to cultivate a, a kind of contempt in these young women towards writings, narratives, arguments, that's um, images that are ultimately going to compromise their independence. I wonder whether we could bring this all together by focusing on the contribution that you think examining the 18th century discussion over ridicule can have on contemporary, you know, early 21st century uh, political culture, you know, thinking about ridicule in our, in our, to do with our politics today. So yeah, what, what, what can we extract? What can we take from it? And yeah, what's your what was your personal motivation, if you don't mind saying, for framing sure. this as a as a book that spoke to spoke to now? I think part of it had to do with my training at Northwestern, where I was in a political science department. Um, you know, and I began as a as a political theorist. That's the phrase that was used, rather than say historian of of political thought. It, it, you know, as I as my studies progressed, I became more and more of an historian, I suppose. Um, and, and, as, and, and as I, and more and more of an intellectual historian, I think. And as that, as I headed down that road, I became more wary of, of, of making the leap to, to present day concerns. But I think in this book, I think it was, um, I mean, I think the, there are certain similarities between the public sphere as it was developing in the 18th century and today. I don't think, um, you know the, the similarities between them can be can be too readily dismissed, and I think some of the anxiety about ridicule that uh, existed in the early 18th century, uh, I think exists today too. I think some of and some and some of the concerns are parallel. Some of them are not, right? So I think in the in the period that I'm looking at, people are a lot more concerned about the religious dimension of all of this. So is ridicule a deist weapon? Is this uh, is ridicule particularly in religious debate? a way of undermining organized religion entirely? Is this an, an attack on Christianity? So the suspicion that Shaftesbury is really, you know, has this sort of diabolical aim to, to chip away at the authority of the church entirely. Um, you know, there was sort of this worry that there's a slippery slope argument. Once you start uh, mocking false prophets, then it's pretty quick, uh, you know, you pretty quickly fall into to mocking Christ on the cross, right? So that religious dimension, uh, which is really powerful, I mean, Mary Astell's attack on Shaftesbury is very much kind of, look, ridicule is boundless. You cannot contain it. You mm. can't just 
you know, targeted at certain religious figures and expected to remain there. It will migrate uh, to other targets and, and, and erode religion generally. That is a concern, I think, that is some people might entertain today. And I think if you look back historically, at, you know, in the 20th century, the controversy over films like The Life of Brian and so on that seem to be making fun of religion, you know, they do still have the capacity to offend, to, uh, to alarm. But I think the, the part that of the book that speaks to today is this sort of worry about, uh, of, of, about incivility and abuse, right? That, mm. um, that mockery is, if you think about it from a Hobbesian point of view, and I think some of us are more Hobbesian about this than we might like to think, it's that, well, actually we recognize that it really hurts uh, to be mocked. Uh, and if you think about the effects of online shaming, uh, pylons and so on, um, there is a kind of simplistic moralism that can come with ridicule where you sort of assume that once you've declared someone to be ridiculous or exposed them as ridiculous or destroyed them as the language they sometimes use goes on, on, on Twitter and other places, then, then the, they should, the other person should simply admit uh, their humiliation and other people should pile on uh, and, and compound that humiliation. You know, that is a, that concern, which is I think a Hobbesian one in a way, the, um, is, uh, is, is very much with us. And it, I think, has tempted some people to say that we should. This is just bad behavior. That mockery is just never a good instrument to use. And that I think. I'm, I, but I want to push back against that tendency too, because I think the the you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm just saying it's complicated. I do really think that the Shaftesbury and Hobbesian perspectives on on ridicule each have something uh, to offer, and we neglect either at our peril, right? So I think we have to recognize that. You know, you can't take the Hobbesian route of just saying this is a bad behavior, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor can you, I think, uh, embrace the sort of simplistic Pollyannish sort of version of Shaftesburianism, which just says, well, you know, if, thing, if people are really vicious or deserving of it, ridicule will attach to them, but it'll kind of bounce off other people uh, or other topics or other things. You know, that is not, uh, you know, the way to go either. I think we need to try and uh, you know, cultivate a way of thinking about ridicule, which is just pays attention to sort of context-specific harms that it can cause um, without sort of panicking about, uh, about it entirely and saying, you know, this is just uncivil, this is just rude, this is just impolite and, and should be stopped. Uh, because if you, if you, if you do that, uh, then the Shaftesburian will say, look, you're just giving kind of unmerited security to the powerful, to the privileged, uh, who then get to say any criticism or pushback or laughter that they endure is, is, is uncivil and impolite and should be shut down, right? So there has to be some kind of, of balance there. Fantastic. I, so yeah, it's a really interesting note to end on. Um, Dr. Voskell, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Right. Goodbye. You're welcome, Robin. Thanks Goodbye. very much. Bye-bye.